Our first reading this morning is taken from Ecclesiastes, and if you are using one of the Bibles we provide, you'll find this on page 559. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. And now if you'll turn with me to our gospel reading, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7, and you'll find that on page 812. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The Gospel of Christ. We come in our study of 1 Corinthians to... uh, a moment when Paul turns from addressing scandalous immorality in the church in Corinth to now addressing scandalous relational brokenness in the church in Corinth. Paul is in that part of the epistle now where, having laid a theological foundation of the cross, moving toward what he'll do at the end in tying it together with the resurrection, where he's calling a church very dear to his heart, a church that he himself had planted, a church where he'd spent a lot of time, a church that had had the the benefit of two of the great other teachers, Apollos, the the eloquent teacher uh, spoken of in Acts, and uh, the apostle Peter. All of these had ministered, and yet Paul has received word both, as he says in chapter 1, from Chloe's people, and also a letter, as he'll indicate later, telling him that the wheels have come off the church in Corinth and that he needs to address a whole series of problems. He's doing that now. We saw the one last week. And uh, interestingly, in that, he says, you're not to judge outsiders, but you are to judge within the church. You are responsible for one another. That, even in the light of Jesus' words just read in the gospel lesson, judge not that you be not judged. Nonetheless, Paul calls for a kind of discerning accountability within the church. But now again, he begins to speak words that on the surface might seem to contradict his call not to judge outsiders. As you'll see, we begin with verse 1 of chapter 6, and we're going to read down through verse 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? 
So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The word of the Lord. Now, if we simply read this superficially, we may think, wait a minute, Paul, you just said at the end of the previous chapter that we're to deal with things within the church, but not to judge the world. The world is God's business. Now you turn around and say, don't you have anybody there competent to judge? Don't you know that you will judge the world, even judge angels? Good heavens, how can Paul get so knotted up in such a short space? Uh, Well, obviously, I don't think he's knotted up at all, as I hope to show. But the other problem that we may have is if we read the Bible the way far too many of us read the Bible, the way many of us are taught to. And it's not the way, as I frequently say, that the early church read the Bible. It's not the way that Jesus and Paul read the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. I know a lot of people who've said, well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that we're not to take a brother or sister to to law, so even though we've got this intractable situation, we've got to find somebody in the church to fix it. Even though it's a legal situation and requires a judge to act, we can't do that. To do that would be sin. Let me try to convince you that Paul was not sitting answering problems in churches thinking, Now, I hope that 2,000 years from now, when Americans in a society with a constitution and many Christians sitting in courts and practicing law who need resolution will know that they can't do it. Paul is always in his letters addressing a local situation. He is applying the gospel to a local situation. And if you think, well, John, that's just your way of weaseling away from the clear sense of this passage, let me give you this. Paul himself did not take his own advice. Paul called the Old Testament people, the people of God, the Jewish people with a congregation. That word is the church. The word that we translate from the Hebrew is congregation, went into the Greek as ecclesia, which is the church. The church under the Old Covenant, the church under the New. When he, and he made great points in Romans. He said, to them still belong the covenant, the law, the, the Messiah is from them. And he went on at the end of Romans 11 to say, they are still loved by God for the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And yet when his own people, the old covenant church, accused Paul of false teaching and summoned him to Jerusalem, 
Paul's response was to appeal to the biggest court of his day. As a Roman citizen, he said, I appeal to Caesar. I'm going to take this right into the public square. So don't read the Bible childishly. Read it within context. Paul is addressing a specific problem, a scandal within the church. And in doing so, he is giving us four moves that you and I must also always make to seek to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ into conflicts that we may find ourselves in as Christian people. What are those four moves? First thing is, and this is not explicitly in the text, it's in the larger context of this epistle. Everything that Paul is doing here is motivated by a fourfold love. If we went back to chapter 4, verse 14, he makes it explicit there. He said, why am I writing this? Why am I holding up before you these things that you're doing? Am I doing this simply to make you ashamed? No, I'm doing it because you are my beloved children. I love you. In chapter 13, which nearly all people have some knowledge of, it's called the love chapter of the Bible. It's from this epistle. Paul will say, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm just a sounding gong and a tinkling cymbal. And then he'll go on and describe all the things that appear profoundly godly and spiritual. If I give away everything that I have to the poor, if I offer my body to be burned, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, we have brothers and sisters who are facing that reality even today. Paul says, if I do all these things that look so good, but am motivated not by love, it's nothing. It's worth nada. Zip. Zero. So many of us live our lives trying so desperately to please God, trying to do things that appear to be self-sacrificial and loving, not because we have any desire to, not because we're growing in Christ, not because we're moved or motivated by God, but simply out of a grudging sense of duty and the desire to make sure that God's not angry with us. Now, let me hasten to say, as I've said before, it is better to do the right thing for the wrong reason than the wrong thing. Uh, the illustration I use is of a child. If you tell your child to go up and clean his room, and then you go up an hour later and he's playing, hasn't done it, and you say, why haven't you cleaned your room? And he responds, you know, as I thought about it, I realized I would not have the right motivation. I wouldn't be doing it out of love and respect for you. I'd be doing it out of f fear of spanking. We don't say, you're deep. How profound. We say, clean up your room right now, or you will get that spanking you don't want. But as we grow, hopefully that doesn't continue. We are moved within the life of a family to do the right thing because we love the people around us. And so Paul is always operating out of this fourfold love, love for God, love for his honor, why should anyone believe what he's already written in this letter when at the end of chapter 4 he wrote, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power? Why should anybody believe that if what they see is powerlessness 
and a church that looks just like the world around it in all of its dysfunctions. So out of love for God and for His kingdom, we should be moved to seek to do what's right. Out of love for the church, Christ and His church, this is to be the place of reconciled relationships, the place where grudges are not held onto, the place where the world can look and see people who are learning to love each other from the heart. Thirdly, out of love for the person who has caused the offense. We just saw that in the last chapter. Paul made clear that he wanted that person who was sinning so egregiously and unrepentantly to be thrown out not merely for the sake of the assembly, but for that man's sake, he said, so that he might be saved. And as we saw, we think the beginning of 2 Corinthians that indeed he was, where Paul says, that's enough, bring him back, embrace him. And finally, for the sake of the world, love of the world. Do we not care enough about the world? that looks and usually the reason most people that don't believe the gospel don't believe it is not because of the arguments of the new atheists. That just puts a bow on the, on the present they're trying to give themselves. Their reason when you press them is they say, I know Christians. I know Christians. And they're no different than anyone else. They say, I'm forgiven. You know, that's the difference between us. Yeah, I'm a jerk too, but I'm a forgiven jerk. And we totally abuse the gospel of grace and utterly fail to understand the gospel, which is not about people receiving forgiveness and going on living like everyone else. A person who has known God's grace has heard the master say, come follow me, come follow me, follow me. We don't do it perfectly, but we're following. And those that don't follow, don't believe. The proof that they don't believe is that they're not following. So there is this threefold movement of love that should be the motive. Secondly, we now come to the verses beginning with verse 2. The second thing we have to have is a kingdom perspective. And that's why Paul is talking about judging again. He has already said, look, you have been entrusted with the church. You've got plenty of work to do there. Be accountable to one another. Seek to walk together and to hold each other accountable so that you will be increasingly living in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord. The world, leave that to the Lord. Love it well. Love people well. Don't expect them to act like Christians. What Paul is talking about now is the fact that the day is going to come when at last, as we sang this morning, we appear with him in glory. And the picture is of those who are in union with Christ, now ruling and reigning with him. Now, as John says in the Revelation, seated with him in that place of dominion where he has been placed, those, John says, who endure to the end. Jesus said, those who endure to the end will be saved. And so this is a picture of what's going to be, and it's as though Paul is saying, you're supposed to be showing the world what it will be like in that day. 
And you're supposed to be, meanwhile, growing up into what you will one day be. You're like children now. You've just been entrusted with this much, but learn there what you will one day be in glory. I'm sure somebody's written a whole book on this, which makes me laugh. I see those books on heaven, big books. Have you seen them? They're like this. What a joke. The Bible only says that much about the age to come. And Paul just opens the door enough here that as our eyes start to focus, he shuts it again and moves on. The Bible doesn't tell us much about what's coming. But it simply says, take seriously now because it's preparing you for what's coming, for the day when you are with Christ in a place of authority in the new heavens, the new earth, this new, newly created cosmos. That's the context. So the first two things that I'm asking myself are to be, as I approach this problem, and particularly if it's a problem directed at me, this person who is in conflict with me, and all of my tendencies are self-defense and make sure that, you know, that I'm right and I'm vindicated and everybody knows that I'm right, and of course my inner fear, I'm being so aggressive because I'm afraid maybe I'm wrong. Everybody will know I'm wrong and I'm not the man I think I am, and oh God, that can't happen, I'll hit him. So, you know, we, we get chippy when we're supposed to be saying, first of all, am I responding in self-sacrificial love? Do I really care about this person? Do I care about the church? Do I care about the honor of God, the honor of Christ, the reputation within the community? Am I being willing to be moved, motivated by love? And secondly, am I looking at this from a kingdom perspective? Is this my response going to be a picture of the way things are to be in the age to come? Or is it simply another manifestation of the brokenness all around me in the society? And I will say that it's always better when Christians can resolve things within the church, if we can find wise people and sit down, people who will mediate and help us. That's always better. But there are some things that cannot be mediated that way. And the call then is to behave in that setting, whether it's heart-rending breakup of a family or whether it is a, a legal disagreement that needs a judgment between two companies or within a company or whatever it is, conflict between neighbors. You and I are to be the people that enter that clearly, not seeking simply to be vindicated and to win, but rather seeking justice for everybody there and willing to show mercy to everyone there. And I've seen that happen where people came out of a legal setting and the people who'd been opposed to them saying, I couldn't believe it. Boy, are those good people. That could have been so ugly and instead they made it something that we could resolve together. That's what we're to be. It's not a little law like we can't go to court, but it's how are you to express in your context the love and compassion of God and how are you to live in a kingdom context. Very quickly, the last two things that he he makes two more moves. He now shows us whether we are operating out of love and in a kingdom context with a very simple and very painful diagnostic question. Find this in, page, in verses 7, I think, through 9. Basically says, ask yourself this. 
Are you willing to be defrauded? Are you willing in order to glorify God, in order to help others? Are you willing to be on the receiving end of things? Listen to how he says it. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So I'm preaching to myself, I assure you, um, in a conflict. And this applies within the family, husbands and wives, parents and children. It applies within the church, it applies among friends, it applies at work. I need to be willing ruthlessly to step back and ask myself, am I really operating out of love? Who am I loving in the midst of this? Just myself? Or has my heart been enlarged with a larger love? Am I operating out of the kingdom principles for the sake of the kingdom? I pray your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a chance for that prayer to be answered right here. Am I willing to do that? Or am I more concerned about my safety, about getting the resolution I want? Am I willing even for the sake of Christ, for the good of this other person, to take a hit? Now, there are some times that the most loving thing you can do is to hold someone accountable. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to make sure that that person who is taken and taken from people and con people is finally called to account. But you can say that to them. You can say, I want nothing but good things for you, but this has to end, and I'm going to love you well enough to hold your feet on the fire and try to get the judge to tell you you've got to start behaving. But you've got to ask, am I willing, if the best thing is for me to go ahead and take it, am I willing for that? If not... Do I really yet get the gospel? I've told this story so many times. It's not my story. It's Tim Keller's, but it's my favorite Tim Keller story. Just I think of this every time I come to this kind of a text. Woman showed up at Redeemer. Tim asked her her story. She said, actually, I work kind of second to the top tier in this. Uh, I think it was an investment group in New York. High level. And she said, I I didn't go to church, didn't believe this stuff, but she said, I made an egregious error that was totally my fault that cost the company a lot of money. And I thought, all my work, all my rising, it's all over, they're going to fire me. Nothing ever happened. And finally she said to a friend, I've kind of been waiting forever for the other shoe to fall. And she said, oh, you don't have to worry about it. Your boss took care of it. She said, my boss took care of it. She said, yeah, he took responsibility. He took the hit. She couldn't believe it. She went up to see him and said, I heard this. And he said, oh, yeah, don't, it's great. You're a great worker. You know, it was a mistake anybody could have made, and I've got the capital in the company to, you know, it was fine. He tried to dismiss it. She said, no. She walked in, shut the door, sat down, and said, I've had bosses who took credit for my good ideas, and I've had bosses who blamed me for their mistakes. Never had a boss who took the hit for me. Why did you do it? And he said, because someone took the hit for me and told her about Jesus. Paul says, are you willing to take the hit for the sake of the kingdom?
And that's why he then turns finally, his final move, is to suddenly list all these sins, you know. He just lists these things, and you're going, now, what's this about that? I mean, he's talking about this and suing and going to court, and all of a sudden he starts listing all this stuff. What's that about? He lists those things to get to the point where he then says, because he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They're out. And then he says, such were some of you. Of course, he was being gracious. It would be far more accurate if he'd said, such were all of you. And if you say, well, maybe I'm not on that list. Yes, you are. Everyone is. If for no other reason, because I think the second thing he lists is idolatry. And idolatry is looking to anything else or anyone else other than the Lord for the ultimate satisfaction and meaning and security of our lives. Every time I look to my retirement account, every time I look to my wife or my children to give my life significant safety, health, I'm an idolater. And as John Calvin observed, our hearts are idol-making factories. He said, we smash them, we offer them back to the Lord, we turn around and another one just popped out. That's why John Piper said so winsomely, I don't wake up a Christian, I have to become one again every day. He didn't mean he lost his salvation, but he means, as Paul said to the Philippian church, we have to work out our salvation day after day knowing that it is God within us working, willing his good pleasure. He says, you were just like the people that you're fighting, the people you want to drag into court. You deserve to be dragged into the biggest court of all. You deserve to stand before the living God and be charged with your sins, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Another paid your penalty. Another took the hit that you deserved. How dare you haul one another before the judge? Does it remind you of any of Jesus' stories? Reminds me of that Scary story, as my granddaughter says. Uh, scary story that he told at the end of Matthew 25. Um, he said there was a, a man who owed his master an unimaginable debt. The terms that Jesus uses are really of a debt that was more like a, a nation's <laughs> GDP. I mean, it was, you, you realize, Nobody could have gotten that indebted to his master. This guy can never pay it. And the master calls him in and says, pay this debt. And he says, I can't. And he weeps and pleads, and his master forgives him. This man goes out, immediately encounters another servant, one of his fellow servants, who owes him actually what's a fairly sizable debt, but nothing compared to what he had owed his master and been forgiven of. And he grabs the man and says, pay me what you owe. And he says, I don't have it. And he says, throw him into prison. The master hears. Calls him back in. And he says, I heard what you did. Throw him into prison until he pays every last cent. Which was forever, baby, because he could never pay that debt. 
And then the point of it all. Jesus says, so my Father in heaven will treat you if you refuse to forgive one another. May I dare say the gospel doesn't work for anybody who refuses to forgive. You just can't have it. Jesus said it in teaching the Lord's Prayer when he reached that moment in Matthew chapter 6 where he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He then stopped and said, for if you will not forgive those who sin against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. The operative principle of the kingdom is that to receive grace, we have to be open for that grace to flow through us to others. So what do we do with the painful, broken places of our lives? We can't always fix them. We can't be reconciled to those who refuse to be reconciled. But we are to be the people whom the world can look to and say, look at how they love each other. Look at how they forgive one another. Look at how they are willing even to take the hit for one another. Is your mode of love, is your context, the kingdom perspective, living now as it will one day be? Are you willing to apply that diagnostic question when your husband or wife has just really done the wrong thing and you are ready to set them right, is it not better to be the one who takes the hit? Are you willing? And are you willing always to remind yourself when that critical, destructive spirit arises of what you and I were by nature and what we are by grace and that that grace will only work if it flows through us to others.